This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. We continue our study through Luke's Gospel, where we've been landing in Luke 6 for some time, and we'll be looking at verses 17 to 26 together this morning. Let's begin our time with prayer. Ask the Lord for his help as we look to his word. Father, we do pray that you would give us eyes to do what we just sang. That we would look to the eternal reward. We would look beyond what our circumstances show us now in our society, in our own lives, in our church, the pain and suffering that we, that maybe are really fresh on our mind this morning and look to your promises, look to our reward, look to Christ. So may we look, Jesus, to you and be helped this morning. Lord, we pray that you would free us from any discipleship that our culture has been doing in our own hearts and minds. We pray that you would show us yourself and show us the value of losing our lives on this planet and living for the next. Risking our lives for you. Of of swimming upstream. with your help. Lord, show us the ways in which you have fulfilled all the law's demands and enabled us now to obey and love others. Lord, make us make our witness discernible, distinguishable in this land, in this city, in this neighborhood. Shape us by your word, Jesus. What powerful words before us. We ask for your help. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I want to read a little bit from a letter written by an older brother to a younger brother. We were overrun with rats who during the night would take away our socks, nibble on our leggings, and take our blotting paper, writing paper, and take them down to the bottom of the boat to build their nest. They caused a good deal of annoyance, so we thought of setting traps for them, but we decided not to do so and simply asked the Lord to rid us of the grievance. Since that time, we have had no further trouble with the rats. He goes on to say, I do not say don't play games or cricket and so forth. By all means, play and enjoy them giving thanks to Jesus for them. Only take care that games do not become an idol for you as they have for me. What good will it do anybody in the next world to be even the best player that's ever been? And then think of the difference between that of winning souls for Jesus. Oh, if you've never tasted the joy of leading one soul to Jesus, go and ask our Father to enable you to do so. And then you will know what real joy is. 
The time is so short. Such a little time to rescue souls from hell. For there will be no rescue work in heaven. I have written earnestly because I know the joy that there is in Jesus. And because I know the innumerable temptations you are exposed to in a public school life. That letter was written by C.T. Studd in the late 1800s as he made his way to China on a ship to his younger brother in England who was at university. Studd was going to China to join in with what would become the China Inland Mission and the work there. Some of you know a little bit about C.T. Studd, but if not, I would encourage you to learn about him more. Um, He was born into a life of privilege, of wealth, lots of money, and he was a superb athlete. Okay, so lots of um, athletic ability, very popular because of that, and he was rich. He was, many say, the Peyton Manning, Michael Jordan, Babe Ruth of cricket in England. And then he left everything behind, everything behind, for the sake of those that had never heard the gospel. This is what he said. He said, I've tasted almost all the pleasures that this world can give. I do not suppose there is one that I have not experienced. But I can tell you that those pleasures were nothing compared to the joy of saving a soul. Some of the biggest opponents as he made this decision to go into missions were his Christian friends and family. One close friend told him, if you do this, you will break your mother's heart. Other friends, you will throw away all that you have, waste all that you've been given. And his wealth was also listed not as a blessing, but as a temptation for his following Jesus. He inherited a great sum of money at the age of 23, And he made himself promise that he wouldn't touch it and make a decision until he was 25 of what to do with it. But he spoke of it not as a blessing, but as a temptation. And so in the end, one of his biographers said this, C.T.'s life stands as a rugged Gibraltar, a sign to all succeeding generations that it is worthwhile to lose all this world can offer and stake everything on the world to come. His life will be an eternal rebuke to easygoing Christianity. As we read the passage before us this morning, that may be the first sense that you get is a, a sense of rebuke, of hearing the words of Jesus Christ, not C.T. Stud. It's the words of Jesus Christ that drove and shaped C.T. Stud that would make this kind of commitment. And we've come to a place in Luke's gospel where Jesus now stands before the crowds and his disciples to give an extended sermon. So the best sermon you're going to hear is not here, but it's from Luke 6. Jesus' sermon. I'm going to preach a sermon on Jesus' sermon about what it means to truly live and be blessed by God. And it is the absolute opposite of what our world says is, is the vision for the good life. It is the opposite. Everything the world despises, poverty, hunger, uh, sadness, weeping, persecution, Jesus holds out as the blessed life when done with God. And then everything the world exalts, being rich, full, totally satisfied, well-liked, Jesus warns and says, woe to those who have these things apart from God. Your soul is in danger. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. And we say that a lot. We know that's in the Bible a lot. But here, rubber meets the road. He calls his followers to also stake 
our lives on the world to come. This section is often referred to as the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, and it begins here, and if you look in, in chapter 6, verse 17, kind of starts with some setting, a setting for the sermon in verses 17 to, to 19. And then the sermon itself goes all the way to the end of the chapter. So you flip over, it goes all the way to, runs up into chapter 7. It stops right before that with another narrative portion. So that's what we're going to be spending the next few weeks on, uh, Lord willing, as we study through chapter 6. And to, this morning we're going to look at those verses, especially 20 and through 26. The blessing and woes that Jesus gives there. And really what he's doing is he's describing uh, two categories of people. Those living for the kingdom as kingdom citizens, those who are in Christ, and those who are living for the world. Finding their hope in the culture and the world alone. And he lists four marks of each category of person. So if you look at the way the text is laid out, you'll kind of notice that there's, there's blessings given in verses 20 to 23, and then woes given in 24 to 26. And those blessings match the woes. Each blessing has a corresponding woe to it. And we're going to put those together and see four kind of categories of people. Or four marks of these categories of people. And if you're taking notes here, they are up front. Number one, We'll, we'll see what Jesus says about the poor and the rich. The poor and the rich. Number two, the hungry and the full. The hungry and the full. Number three, the weeping and the laughing. Weeping and laughing. And number four, the hated and the popular or the well-liked by all. Now, all these categories have both physical components to them, merely physical components, but also spiritual components. But the main point is this, followers of Jesus live for Jesus and his kingdom. They are blessed. They are blessed. The question for us this morning is, what are we living for? Where is our ultimate allegiance? Where is our hope? Let's look together at the setting for the sermon, uh, beginning there in verse 17. We read this, and he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of the disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. One of the biggest uh, questions around this section is, is this the same or different than Matthew's Sermon on the Mount? Uh, that we read in Matthew's gospel. Some argue that it's the same situation. I think there's enough differences between Luke's version of the sermon here and what we see in Matthew that we're looking at two different occasions, two different sermons. Uh, and maybe the most obvious difference is the, the Matthew's, Matthew tells us that Jesus goes up onto a mountain in Matthew chapter 5 to preach the sermon. And here Luke says he comes down from the mountain. That's where he's been in prayer all night and then stands on a level place to give the sermon. So when you take that and you factor it in with other things that are different between the two sermons, for example, the woes that Luke gives here, those aren't given in Matthew's uh, gospel. Luke's version is shorter. But what we have here is Jesus speaking about the same material in a different time in a slightly different way. And that's something that preachers sometimes will do. They have material that they'll say, and, and they'll say it at different times and in different ways. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here. So he's on a level place. Gathered around him, you've got these three groups. And I think you could maybe even see them as three concentric circles around Jesus. You've got the, the 12 disciples, the apostles that he has just 
commissioned and named in the previous verses. And then surrounding those apostles are the disciples, those who are following after Jesus, eagerly seeking to know him and and follow him, learn from his teaching. And then you've got kind of everyone from the countryside, everyone else, uh, probably made up of Jews and Gentiles. You might call these folks seekers. They're just there to figure out what's going on. and, And some of them are particularly seeking to hear Jesus teach, but also to be healed. Uh, healed from their diseases and healed from demonic possession that's very active during this time of Jesus. So Jesus' reputation is spreading as someone who can deal with those problems. He can deal with the demons. He can deal with sickness. He's healed everyone who's come to him so far in this very generous way. All these needs, and here they're met as well. Everyone's healed. All who had demons were cured. All the physical needs were met. Everyone was healed for great power came out from him. Verse 19. So I just want to observe that Jesus meets physical needs here in conjunction with true spiritual needs. I think it's interesting that the weight of those two things uh, probably helps helps us to understand the way that Luke sees them. He tells us um, that you know there's there's one or two sentences about Jesus doing this miraculous healing, and then paragraph upon paragraph in Matthew's gospel, chapter upon chapter of the sermon that he preaches. And so I think that helps us to see that the the physical work that Jesus did in healing is meant to serve this work of displaying who he is as the son of God who came not just to heal bodies, but to die for our spiritual death. That's the picture of what we see in the Gospels as we read this emphasis on Jesus' identity and his teaching and who he is and what he came to do. That said, I do think it's instructive and helpful for us to see what Jesus does with these people that come to him with a small seed of faith, even misguided, even coming mainly for for healing. He doesn't send them away. He meets their immediate needs and then tells them about their eternal needs. So he ministers in word and deed. And I think that's just good for us, word people to hear and to see. That we're not, we shouldn't be afraid of slipping into the social gospel because we go and meet some needs for those around us en route to sharing the gospel with them and loving them and telling them about Jesus. If we err, as a good brother said to me recently, we ought to err on the side of compassion, of loving others, being a witness to others about who Jesus is. He models that for us so well over and over again. He shows himself to have authority over sickness and the demonic over and over again, points to his identity. Another thing that I think Luke is doing here in this description of setting is he's, he's kind of pointing us to another man, re- reminding us of another man that was called to lead God's people who also went up on a mountain to meet with God and then came down to the people to meet with them and deliver a message. He too was leading God's people out of a situation of bondage to freedom, to a new home, to the promised land. So throughout our study, we're going to see Luke picture Jesus as this new Moses, leading a second and greater exodus into the ultimate promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. Moses himself told God's people to look for this person in Deuteronomy 18. He said in verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And we know that isn't ultimately fulfilled in Joshua, who comes after Moses, but ultimately it's fulfilled in Jesus. It's interesting, in a few chapters, we'll see on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus goes up on a mountain, Moses goes up on the mountain with Jesus and Elijah. 
And then a voice from heaven, the Father speaks and says, this is my Son, my chosen one, listen to Him. Jesus is that that greater prophet to come like Moses. Moses delivered the nation of Israel from slavery to Egypt. Jesus is leading a new Israel. We saw that last week with appointing of 12 apostles to match the 12 tribes of Israel, a new Israel out of slavery of sin and death. It's been encouraging for me even recently to, to read about, I don't know if it's encouraging, interesting, about Moses' frustration with the people of Israel as you read about their wanderings in the wilderness, how upset and angry and frustrated he gets with God's people for their sin to the point where eventually he just, instead of speaking to the rock as God told him, he smacks the rock with his staff to have water come out. And because of that, Moses doesn't get to enter the promised land. He just gets to see it from afar. But the new, better Moses is the one who is stricken for the sins of his people. He comes to take the punishment that we deserved on the cross to absorb the wrath of God for us. Take it, all that we deserved on the cross, that we might be reconciled to God by faith. So understanding Jesus' kingdom and how to live as a kingdom citizen, it begins and ends with the gospel. That Jesus died for us. This is not a list of to-do things that we want to try to, to really try really hard at this summer, that God might love us more. That's not going to happen. Our hope has to be ultimately fully in Jesus Christ, in Him alone. When we think about this call to be poor, poor in spirit, we should hear Paul's words who remind us that though He was rich, speaking of Jesus, yet for your sake He became poor so that you by His poverty might be rich. So we're enriched in the righteousness of Christ. That's our standing. That's our resting place. Each beatitude is fulfilled in Jesus alone. And then we are called by his grace to then walk in obedience because our faith is in Jesus. That's our only hope for salvation. So friend, if you don't know Jesus, that's the main point that you should hear today. Put your faith and trust in him. He is every in every way that you have failed and I have failed and sinned. He has succeeded and obeyed perfectly. And by faith, if you trust him and his perfect life and his atoning death on the cross for your sins and his bodily resurrection from the grave, you can be forgiven of all of your sins. You can be made right with the holy God where right now you deserve his punishment and justice for your sin. You can be made right with him. I pray that you would. I pray you'd turn from your sin and put your trust in Jesus. I'd love to talk to you more about that as would the person who's sitting next to you if you have questions about what it means to be a Christian. Jesus came to do more than just heal your body. He came to heal your soul and give you abundant life. And that's what the rest of the sermon is going to be about. What does that abundant life look like? What does that abundant life look like? He's going to define it for us. And listen, this is not what you're going to see on commercials on television. When you get a, you're going to get a vision of abundant life that is not this. And we've all been discipled in it. We're going to list these four beatitudes along with their corresponding woes together. Let's look at the first pair, the poor and the rich. The poor and the rich. Now, these blessing statements that we're going to see, these, they're often called beatitudes, are for those that are in Jesus. And they're, this, this description of this happy, blessed state of life from a kingdom perspective, this otherworldly perspective. Now, although he's surrounded by committed disciples, apostles, bystanders, Notice who he looks at as he begins in verse 20. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, 
for yours is the kingdom of God. Friends, that's just an important note to take away as you're reading and thinking about what Jesus is saying. He is not just talking about poverty in general or talking to everyone and saying everyone should try their best to become poor. That's not, that's not his message at all. The Bible doesn't commend poverty as a goal to be achieved. The Bible actually warns against both extremes of wealth and poverty because of the attendant temptations that come with them. And a great place to see that is in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. You should probably write that down if that's not familiar to you. Proverbs 30, 8 and 9. What a prayer that we have recorded here. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. That's what the Bible teaches. A a real honest assessment of our own hearts says that if I've got money, I'm going to be tempted to not trust God. And if I don't have money, I'm going to be tempted to sin to get what I need instead of trusting God. So Lord, just give me enough that I need. Help me to trust you. I think it's a great prayer and a great reminder to know our hearts because we know we're like fish who swim. They don't know they're wet. And we live in in a place, a context of wealth compared to the rest of the world, and we often forget how easy it is to be dependent upon that wealth. Jesus has applied his messianic promise, what the Messiah does from Isaiah 61 to himself. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has appointed me, anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And his message to you and to these poor believers is this. If you're poor physically in this life, but you're trusting in the Lord, you currently possess an eternal kingdom. Don't look to your circumstances. Know that you have an eternal kingdom in your possession. Luke has an intentional focus on this more than I think the other gospel authors. He has a theme of just the way God is going to reverse things through Jesus. It comes out in the way that Mary even explains kind of who Jesus is and praises God when he's born and for his ministry in the Magnificat. She says he has known strength with his arms. Speaking of God, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought low the mighty from their thrones, exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Because God is out for his own glory. Now, Matthew helps us with a broader view of what it means to be poor. Poverty that reaches outside of our bank accounts. When he said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. So, So there's a disposition of the heart. Certainly that's something that we're called to. A desperation, a neediness, a humility that comes naturally with poverty. So poverty could be a spiritual advantage because you're used to needing things and it seems a lot easier to call out to God when you need something than when you don't. On the other hand, look at verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation or comfort. The word woe, if you're, if you're thinking about it in terms of Old Testament prophecy, often communicates the opposite of God's favor, God's curse. But the word here that Jesus uses actually carries a sense of sadness with it over people who are living out this way, more of a lamentation. It means something like, alas, or how terrible. It just expresses regret and compassion. So he sees how tragic it is for people to live their own way apart from God's way, 
which is the only way of blessing. And here, how, how tragic, how terrible, how sad to live for the wealth of this world, to put all your stock in this life and material possessions. He's saying the poor are suffering now, but will be comforted. The rich, Jesus says, apart from God, are comforted now. And that's all the comfort they will ever receive. So they are actually truly poor. Unlike the poor, the rich, I think it's good to apply this to ourselves, even if you wouldn't consider yourself rich. But in the context that we live, right, we are insulated, usually insulated, from the pains of daily survival, which numb us, can numb us to our daily need for God. If it's hot, I go in the air conditioning. If I'm dirty, I take a shower. If I need to go somewhere, I get in my car and go. If I'm thirsty, I get a cold drink. But I am just as needy as the homeless person who's standing outside in the heat who I woke up you know, this week before I came into the office to say he needed to, to kind of move on. I'm just as needy as that person is spiritually. But my air conditioning and comfortable home and full refrigerator can trick me into thinking that I can do life on my own. Friends, even when you put all the access that we have to Bible, all the access we have to internet, podcasts, and, and scripture and theological education, I think you put that on one side of the scale, the other side of the scale, you have our wealth. I think it's, we still see that we can be easily impoverished as a people because of our general wealth. A disadvantage spiritually. Not to be like worked against, but to be aware of. Be aware of the danger in receiving your comfort from only this life. Just hear the words of Jesus that we're going to see later in Luke's gospel. Luke 9, 25. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Nothing. Oh, it's so attractive now, but it will profit us nothing. It's eternally empty. Luke 12, 15. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Luke 18, 25. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I helped, uh, some of us other, others helped the Hostetlers move this week and we loaded up a U-Haul. And you may know where I'm going with this. It reminded me of that, that, that saying that the hearse that is going to carry you and I to the cemetery one day is not going to have an attachment on the back for a U-Haul. There's nothing that we're going to be able to bring with us that day. We can't take our money or our houses or our cars or our gold or our golf clubs or swimming pools or boats, prize collections with us. It'll just be the way that we came into this earth, naked. And we will come out of it naked and stand before a holy God. So friend, how much better to know now and direct our life's investment to the kingdom of God, not the things of this earth. Earthly treasure is a bad eternal investment. So put your stock in the promises of Jesus in the world to come. Friends, that looks like investing your life in others, in seeing the gospel go to the ends of the earth, to our neighborhoods, to our family, investing yourself in the church that Jesus promised would prevail. In the bank of heaven, as C.T. Studd put it after he turned 25 and gave away his entire inheritance to gospel causes. This may be the greatest challenge for us to hear. 
But with God, all things are possible. We're going to read about a rich guy who gets saved in Luke's gospel. Zacchaeus is going to get saved. And he's going to, his life is going to be changed. We need him. The second category to, to, to notice is closely related to the first. You've got the poor and the rich, and they're going to either be hungry or full. That's number three, hungry or full. Look at verse 21. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Again, on the face of it, we know what this means and we understand that the blessing that comes along with hunger is looking ahead to be satisfied. I'm not satisfied. I'm looking ahead to be satisfied. Jesus is saying that is what I'm talking about. That is a blessing. Because you're made to know God and be satisfied in God. Nothing else will fully, ultimately satisfy you. Period. So our hunger pangs teach us something about our need for God. We're dependent upon Him to care for both our needs uh, spiritually and physically. And those physical needs point to the deeper spiritual need. So Matthew elaborates, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Don't you love the way the Bible speaks about this, the way the psalmist speaks about this? Psalm 63, 1, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. How can there be a blessing in a dry and weary land? Well, if it causes you to thirst for God, who is the ultimate cooling, quenching, satisfying soul oasis that we were made for. As the deer pants for the flowing stream, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. Friend, oh, don't you want that to be your heart? I want it to be my heart. Is that a humble prayer that you pray? Lord, give me thirst and hunger for you. You can alone satisfy me. Nothing the world offers me can compare with drinking deeply from the fountains of God's grace, from, the, from eating richly from the banquet of His Word. The psalmist again, Psalm 107, verse 9, for He satisfies the longing soul. He satisfies the hungry. And the hungry soul He fills with good things. And ultimately, we know this culminates in Jesus Christ. I am, He says, the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. Jesus is promising the hunger and thirst we have for God will be satiated in Him and ultimately satisfied in God. But, verse 25, Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. If we fill ourselves now with the world's delicacies, we will not hunger for God. We will be full now and left wanting in eternity. So if we're full now, we are not anticipating being satisfied fully by God. We are growing lethargic and weak. We have no need for what would come and satisfy us later. Friend, is there anything in your life that might be just deadening your heart to an expectation of satisfaction in God alone? Anything that you're doing regularly that takes your, your soul's attention, that removes the urgency of satisfaction in God. Mothers, you've probably said this multiple times, don't spoil your dinner. And you work hard on preparing a meal. It's smelling good, it looks good, you spent hours on it. And then kids come in and sorry, went to McDonald's on the way home. I'm not really hungry. 
What a, what a, what a picture of what Jesus is saying. What, what is numbing us? What is taking away our appetite for the, the good meal, the better food? Maybe it's sitting in our pockets right now, our phones and all that we are attached to there. Seek your satisfaction in Christ and you'll be hungrier for more and more and more of him and he alone will satisfy us. The next set of blessings has and woes has to do with the weeping and laughing. Weeping and laughing. Again, look at verse 21. The second part. Blessed are you who weep now for you shall laugh. What happens when you have disciples who are growing in their expectation for God's kingdom to come? They're longing for holiness and righteousness, and yet they live in a dark and broken, sinful world. A world where God is not honored. His ways are ignored. Jesus says, blessed are you when you weep. When you weep. When you're affected by the evil around you. There's a kind of spiritual sensitivity that comes with being born again that, that weighs heavy when you see evil running rampant and celebrated in our world. There's a long tradition of this in the scriptures among the prophets. Jesus kind of links this to, do you notice? He'll link that to these, these reactions to the prophets. Jeremiah 9, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Blessed are those who weep, who are stricken by the inadequacy of this world. I think Jesus is referring to all the sorrows of a fallen world. We weep for our sins, not without hope, but our desire is to please God. And when we sin, we, we weep over our sin. We want to turn away from our sin. We hate our sin. We weep for the sins of others who sin against us and others that we love. We weep for our society our country that is drifting further and further and further from God. What better time to be reminded than this month? Labeled as pride. Pride. Celebrating what God abominates. In this country, we celebrate rebellion against our Creator. And so it is right. It is right to quake and weep over the evil in our land and to pray and fast that God would come and that he would work and that the, the true gospel would be heard and known and people would trust in him. Not to lightly brush it away. Certainly want to work for change. You want to speak out. But knowing true final change is when Jesus is going to finally say it is enough. And when he comes, and at that point, there is no hope for an unbeliever. So we weep and we pray. We weep for the lost that we know and love apart from God's grace that are on their way to an eternal condemnation. We weep for the suffering who are in pain constantly, mentally, physically, and there seems to be no way out and we have no way to fix it. So we weep. For the injustice in our world, we weep. We don't just slough it off. We don't just ignore it. We don't make light of it. Verse 25. Woe to you, or woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. 
Jesus is not against laughing. Laughter is a gift from God. I think if we walked with Jesus, uh, we would notice that he laughed often and heartily. Often the things he says in Scripture, there's a, a note of, of kind of uh, sarcasm there and some, some just funny things that he says. Jesus is referring here to a superficial, non-serious view towards serious, serious things. There's a mocking of God that takes place when we have to turn everything into a joke to relieve the pressure in the room. Using laughter as a way of constantly making things light and shallow. And absolutely it's a defense mechanism not to face the truth before us. But if you never take Jesus seriously and you laugh off the evil of this world and make light of an eternal hell, what awaits is only weeping. You laugh now, but all you have waiting for you is weeping and eternal weeping. Jesus literally says, hell will be full of weeping and gnashing of teeth, sadness and anger. Bottom line, there will come a day when righteousness is established and God's people will be able to rejoice over the way that things are even now. But those that laugh off these spiritual realities, don't take them seriously in a world of rebellion, will find themselves weeping in the world to come. And on the other hand, God's people that are weeping now, friend, brother, sister, you may be here weeping internally, externally, heavy sadness for a variety of things. You'll be comforted. You will be comforted. In fact, the pain and suffering endured in this life will be so far removed from you. You'll be experiencing such joy in Christ and in knowing God for who He is. You'll be able to laugh about all that we once wept over. You'll never sin again. Every tear wiped away. Every injustice made right. Beloved, Jesus is saying, live for that day today. That's what gets you through. Look to the day of coming comfort and reward where you will laugh. Paul says it this way, so we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, temporary, hunger, weeping, persecution, poverty. But things that are unseen, they are eternal. Brother and sister, look to the eternal. Live in light of that day. Even through tears, there is a great, lasting, ironclad, eternal hope for you. Now, not everyone's going to see that hope in this life. And that brings us to the last pair of blessings and woes. Number five, the hated and the popular. The hated and the popular. This time, let's start with the woe. Look at verse 26. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. I think you should, you should underline that word all. Okay, um, Woe to you when all people speak well of you. Because there's a tension in Scripture that we need to allow for. Jesus does not mean for his people just to be a stink in the nostrils of, of our communities just for the sake of not being liked, of being hated. Paul, Paul says if you're going to have an elder in your church, 
come, if he's qualified as an elder, he needs to be thought of well by outsiders so that he wouldn't fall into disgrace, into the snare of a devil, the devil. 1 Timothy 3, 7. So we ought to have reputations that back up the gospel that we preach. We should be good neighbors, good citizens, good students and bosses and employees. Our ethical lives provide a platform to adorn the gospel that we preach. We ought not be preaching a gospel and living a life of sin. People hear clanging symbols when they see that. What Jesus is talking about is universal popularity. Pleasing man, not God. Going with the way the cultural winds are blowing. Everyone approves of you. J.C. Ross says if that happens, then there should be alarm bells going off. Especially to preachers. To be universally popular is a most unsatisfactory symptom and one of much which, which a minister of Christ should always be afraid. It may well make him doubt whether he is faithfully doing his duty and honestly declaring all the counsel of God. If you're faithful to Jesus and everybody's happy, something's wrong. This is the temptation of our day, isn't it? To make sure to find ourselves on the right side of history, not to offend. We want to include everyone. When we do that, friends, we do lose the very witness that we're calling people to. It will never be popular to be faithful to Jesus. We need to get that settled in our own hearts and minds. We're going to either want to be embraced by the culture or embraced by Jesus. Some people are going to like it when you talk about loving others. Jesus says love others. When you drill down about what that love means, about what Jesus' moral teaching actually was and how it should look, you'll find that they don't want that love at all. You can't serve man's approval and Jesus' approval. We have to pick. Israel was known for this, for gathering false prophets that would tell them what they wanted to hear, to tickle their ears, to make them feel better. Friends, that's not what we should do. We should expect when we're faithful, verse 22, blessed are you, blessed are you, when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. So their fathers did to the prophets. Jesus, could you repeat that? The blessed life, the good life, when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they call you evil and revile you. Of course, again, he's not just like poverty. He's not talking about a general dislike. When they do that to you because of your connection with me, he says, your connection with the Son of Man. It's not persecution when someone excludes you you from friendship because you regularly lie about them. Or they call you evil because you've done evil to them. Jesus is saying, if you stick with me in my ways and you live out this life in the world, people will hate you for it. And you know this already. Some of you are are having to stand up in ways today that you never even would have thought you'd had to five, ten years ago. At work, you're feeling the pressure. You're caught between, okay, I need money, but I also want to be faithful to Jesus, and I've never had to think about this coming to a head like it is right now. I just want to encourage you. Look to Jesus' promises. Choose Jesus. This pressure is not going to go away anytime soon. 
How paradoxical is this? Rejoice. What do we do when this happens? Rejoice. Leap for joy. Not because it's fun. Not because he wants you to endure pain for the sake of pain, but because your reward will be great in heaven. Again, look to the reward. Not your current circumstance. You will put yourself in a long line of people, the prophets, that have experienced this. Friends, we're talking about those concentric circles. In the center circle was the apostles. They're listening to what Jesus is saying. And listen to what happens in Acts chapter 4 after they were jailed and beaten. This is what we read. Again, Luke records. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. What an honor to be beaten and jailed for Jesus. Just make sure our persecution is on account of Jesus. Outside of that, we're called to to live a life that people can't accuse you of anything as much as it depends on you. So friend, just pray for our church. It would be faithful when the pressure increases as it will. Pray that we wouldn't seek the approval of man, but of God alone, no matter what comes. This is what it means to live under the rule and reign of the king. We're going to say more about this as we come back and continue to look through this sermon. But, you know, this sermon has shaped cultures and lives, of course, for centuries and centuries and centuries. We can't plumb the depths of it. But we do see that it's what it means to be blessed. C.T. Studd, again, referred to this prayer. As he's praying for the church, he prayed this, that we would all stake it, stake our lives for Christ. He said, maybe alluding to Job, when shall God be able to say to the devil, have you seen my Christians of today? No longer do they seek for gold or pleasure, for honors or ease. From henceforth, my Christians will spill their blood for the love and cause of my beloved son and the salvation of the neediest of men. When indeed shall we see the real church militant here upon earth? Will we not build on sand, but on the bedrock of the sayings of Christ and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it before the whole world? I before the sleepy, lukewarm, faithless, namby-pamby Christian world. We dare to trust our God. We will venture all of our, all that we have for him. We will live and we will die for him and we will do it with his joy, unspeakable, singing aloud in our ears. We will a thousand times sooner die trusting only in our God than live trusting in man. May the Lord do that in me and in us. We know C.D. Studd probably most famously for this, this little phrase, only one life which will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Friends, how are we going to spend that one precious life? How shall we live? Let's pray. Lord, we call upon you. We call upon you for help and grace in a time of need. Lord, thank you for your promises that you will keep us, that you have saved us. And Lord, may we live lives that simply reflect the power of the gospel. It's so easy to forget about the, just the sharp edges that are in your word of eternal realities. We confess instincts that want to lighten things up and not come face to face with these realities. But Lord, you did. You came face to face. 
with hell for us. And so may we be those that believe your word and live according to your word by the power of the Spirit. Lord, we rejoice in you no matter where we find ourselves this morning. We pray that you would, by your grace, give us eyes to see our reward. Give us eyes to see the day of comfort and consolation, the day of laughter, the day of satisfaction. We pray that you would do this in your name, for your glory. Amen.